This is episode number 252. What is the impact of unresolved trauma? With Dr. Dunn Wood. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to make a few quick announcements. First one being in regard to our show, and that is if you have enjoyed any of our previous episodes or or any of the other work that we're able to accomplish through this particular organization, please consider supporting our work by making a contribution or donation through our website at overcomingodds.today or leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. The other announcement that I wanted to make is in regard to our weekly conversation that takes place every single Friday at 10.45 a.m. Central Time, which is part of our weekly series called Survive to Thrive Attitude of Gratitude. What this is, is a series of conversations where we explore the connection between grief and gratitude, resilience and gratitude, appreciation and gratitude, and many other related topics. If this is of interest to you, please join us on LinkedIn or Facebook every single Friday at 10.45 a.m. Central Time, where you'll be able to share your own insights and perspectives as it relates to each and every single one of the themes that we choose to explore. Now, let's get back to the show. Dr. Don, welcome to the show. Thank you. Looking forward to talking to you today. Absolutely. Quick question for you. So I've always been curious about this in regard to the titles before people's names. Do you personally have a preference, whether it's fully Dr. Don Wood? Is it Dr. Wood, Dr. Don? And then the other question that I have is in regard to the title itself. What meaning does that carry in your life? Um, well, you can call me whatever, whatever's comfortable for you. I mean, some people will say Dr. Don or Dr. Wood or, you know, Doc. I mean, they call me Doc. <laughs> so whatever sort of word, I'm fine with any of those. Um, and, and my doctorate is in uh, clinical counseling psychology. So um, basically, I, I got my PhD really studying um, to help resolve some of the issues that my own personal family were going through. So that's why mm-hmm. I went back and got my PhD. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, at least this has been my experience, that the area that I chose to quote unquote study or work in is directly related to what I'm going through, as well as maybe some of the other people surrounding me. So it's just fascinating how I think the two are just so interconnected. And at least for me, it has brought a significant amount of purpose and meaning into my life because I was able to relate all of these things back onto myself and my own personal right. experiences that I've been through. So it's fascinating that, and I appreciate you sharing it because I've never, never fully understood, as you can tell by the name, by my name, I don't have a doctorate in anything. So I've right. always been curious, like what meaning does that carry for the person? Because some people I've had conversations with, they've even told me, do not call them doctor. Oh, really? Or, yeah, X, Y, and Z reasons. And then others uh, have corrected me 
not necessarily on podcasts, but just in everyday encounters that, yep. hey, I am a doctor. So I just, <laughs> I just want to make sure I get. <laughs> I, I'm so easy going. You can call me anything. That's fine. Of course. <laughs> I'm glad that we're able to connect today because I think the topic that we wanted to discuss, it's very much relevant to what I've experienced throughout my life, many different circumstances. And it's this concept of unresolved trauma and the impact of it. And the way that I actually understood this topic when we first spoke about it was slightly different, maybe somewhat similar. And it's to something that I've been trying to actively do within my life within the past however many weeks to however many months. And that is resolving unresolved relationships. So relationships that didn't work out for X, Y, and Z reasons, or maybe they did work out and it just wasn't the expected outcome or an assumption that I had of what they needed to be. And what I've realized was that it's very similar to what you and I are going to be discussing today. And that's before I started to really take a proactive approach in resolving them, that trauma stayed with me literally until today or until until whenever I chose to resolve it. And my own personal experience, what I've found within that journey is once I started to approach each and every single one of them and actually work through that trauma, my life became not necessarily easier, but lighter. Like sure. I've noticed a lot more, I don't know, freedom is the right word, but ease within my life. And yep. it actually strengthened some of my current relationships because I was able to see elements in some of those unresolved ones and carry them into my current ones, probably in order to prevent similar situations moving forward in, in the current ones. But I'm curious to hear just from your lens and your own perspective, what have you noticed as far as the impact of some of this unresolved trauma or conflicts or similar situations in your life? It's a major effect. I don't think people sometimes truly understand how much of an impact this unresolved trauma is having. It's not only affecting relationships, it's affecting health. Um, and what happens is, and this is the way I sort of explain it is, I was very, very fortunate that I grew up in a very loving, nurturing, safe environment. My parents were just incredible human beings with, they never yelled, never raised their voice. I never experienced any trauma. You know, so I would get bumped here and there every once in a while, you know, with a friend, but nothing major. And so my nervous system was constantly regulated as a child. So I would come home and everything would feel safe again, right? Because I'm in this environment. So because I was growing up in that, I just assumed everybody was growing up in that, that everybody had my parents because I didn't see the dysfunction in my friends' families. I didn't realize that they were experiencing traumatic you know, physical, emotional, sexual abuse going on because nobody talked about it. And so I just assumed everybody was okay. And then it wasn't really till I met my wife when I was 18, uh, we were just going out at the time that I realized that she was not living in the world I grew up in. She had a very, very angry, dysfunctional father that just ruled the house with complete terror and everybody was afraid of him. And so he had a violent temper. And so he just controlled everything through his temper. And that was foreign to me that I had never experienced before. And um, I could see that all the children in the family were just petrified of him. And I thought, what a way to grow up. 
but I didn't realize how many of the people that I knew were living in that environment. And so my wife ended up with Hashimoto's, a autoimmune disorder, which was basically caused by, she was in a constant state of fight or flight. So her cortisol levels were elevated on a constant basis. And I thought, okay, when she's living with me, she's going to be living in my environment. So everything will calm down because she'll be living in the world I grew up in. And it didn't. She was still living in fear, even though she was not living with her father. I couldn't understand that. That wasn't making any sense to me. So she was not truly appreciating and she wasn't feeling that happiness that she should have been based on the current environment she was in. You know, we had three beautiful children. We had a beautiful home. We had a successful business. And yet at the same time, she was always worried, just couldn't relax. And what I realized now after doing all this research is because as a child, things would be good for a little while and then would be really bad and it would turn on a dime. It would turn in an instant. So even though she did, she knew consciously that she was safe. Her unconscious, right, survival brain, her subconscious was just waiting for that to end. Something was going to go wrong. Something was going to happen, right? Someone was going to destroy this because that's what she'd experienced. And her mind continued to loop through that. Now, fortunate for her, my nervous system stayed fairly regulated. So I was able to stay very close with her and sort of try to help her through it and understand it. And yet it was still frustrating for me because I could say something as simple as, no, I don't like that. And she would start to tear up and say, why are you upset with me? And that made no sense to me because I wasn't upset with her. But she could hear the tiniest little inflection change, the tone in my voice, any little bit of frustration sounded like I was yelling at her. And so children in particular who have been traumatized as children are highly sensitive to sound. So they can hear things and they pick up on things that I couldn't pick up on. You could have paid me. I couldn't have heard the change in my <laughs> voice. Right? Yet to her, I was screaming. And so my daughter ended up with Crohn's disease when she was 14. They told us it was, you know, a diet thing. You had to change gluten, dairy, do all these different things. And we ended up through my research, I discovered that I really believe it was coming from unresolved trauma. And the Crohn's, the response to trauma is inflammation. Inflammation then compromises the immune system and the neurotransmitters. So she was getting sicker and feeling bad. That's the response. Now you bring that into another relationship and then the other person has their own set, right, of circumstances that they're filtering through. You can see where a relationship would struggle because as much as with me, I was very calm and relaxed like my father, I was still struggling with my wife's inability to feel safe. Now, if I had lived a very traumatic childhood, that probably would have created a lot more conflict. I would, isn't that amazing? So I was able to stay even with the, so in the best of circumstances, I was struggling. Now, if I had to come in with similar circumstances to her, right? Maybe our marriage doesn't survive because I would activate her nervous system. She'd activate my nervous system. And then we'd be off and, you know, separated, not talking because we were, you know, angry or frustrated with each other.
Did you find that just through your own experience and everything that you have been through in your own life to this particular point, that in a way trauma attracts trauma? And what I mean by that is because as I look back at some of the not necessarily intimate relationships, but maybe even some of the friendships that I have had, I can definitely pinpoint a number of them where each other's individual traumas, especially unresolved ones, or the things that attracted the two of us. And there's something that you mentioned as far as being in the relationship like that, at least for me, what I've experienced is what one of the challenges that I experienced in a situation such as that one is it became that much harder for me to identify my own unresolved trauma because I was sharing a space with someone else. And so in a way we were sharing each other's trauma and it became difficult to identify the origins of our own. And so I'm curious and pardon me if the question doesn't make sense. And if, and if it, if it makes sense to you, however, please choose to go okay. from, <laughs> okay. from that point. No. But I, I'm curious because I, in my experience and, and with my limited understanding, trauma and the emotions associated with it are so strong. I wonder how much of a factor does it play in attracting people and relationships into our lives in order to solve it? Well, I, I think what happens is, and, and I sort of relate this to sort of an energy level, right? So that if you have been very injured or hurt in your life, you're going to carry a certain kind of energy that's an unconscious energy. And I think that's where what you're talking about yes. is how the, those two people will find each other because they're sort of resonating at the same energy. Mm -hmm. um, so that can very easily happen because you feel safe with somebody who's got the same, maybe not exactly the same pain, but pain. Right. So, yeah. you know, why do people and this is probably a terrible analogy, but, you know, why do people who are drug addicts hang around with drug addicts? Right. Because they can relate to each other. Right. And so they sort of are able to sort of talk and, and feel somewhat safe in that kind of a relationship. And it's very hard to attract anybody who isn't in that. Right. Because they may not understand it. So it feels safe because if you've got somebody who's been injured and you've been injured, you feel like, oh, they'll be able to understand me, right? And I'll be able to sort of feel like we can communicate. But at times, you know, that sort of makes sense to one degree, but at the same time, you may activate their nervous system, they may activate your nervous system, and that's when the fighting starts because you both get activated. Mm -hmm. And then the communication breaks down because any relationship is all about communication. And if the communication breaks down, the relationship is going to end. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing that somebody told me, which was really fascinating, is the thing that you need to look for in a relationship is that when an argument turns into contempt, when you experience contempt in a relationship, it's over. Because that is too hard to come back from. You can live with disagreements and you can live with, you know, you know, the typical things that couples or relationships are going to go through but when it turns into that sort of hatred you know contempt for the other person that's when pretty much the relationship how does that happen how does that happen how do you get because i've been curious about this topic for quite some time and in fact if i would have had this conversation however many years ago i still probably 
been able to experience the relationships I was a part of. <laughs> yep, but yep, absolutely. I, I wonder, is does much of that boil down to where I choose to focus on as far as the area goes? Because it, I, at least in my opinion, every single one of us have our own imperfections or flaws, so to speak. And yep. what I've realized was that the more that I chose to focus on those imperfections within the other individual, because it was, at least at the time, it was difficult for me to recognize my own due to blind spots and all these other factors. I realized that what you were talking about became 100% the relationship that we were going through. It was much harder to have these conversations that were simply agree to disagree. And I've been curious, and I've been trying to learn this from my parents, because I think they do this exceptionally well. But how does one as an individual, maybe it's a collective, what really contributes to being able to get to that point where it's agree to disagree conversations compared to hating the other individual? It really comes down to respect and understanding. So the key, which is very hard to do when you're in a relationship and you've had a lot of hurt or pain, to sit and give that person some space. Because very easily they can activate your trauma, right? Without you even realizing it by saying something, a word they say, a mannerism they have, you know, like, like I said, even for my wife, if I sort of gave a little bit of a look like, you know, maybe rolled my eyes or sort of, you know, shrugged my shoulders, right? That to me would not have probably stirred that kind of response in me, but for her, that was disrespectful. And then that would really, then she would then just say, you know, so what's that all about? So what are you, what are you saying? What are you trying to say to me? And I'd be like, oh, wow, I didn't even realize I did it, right? So normal everyday sort of responses to something could magnify if you've got somebody who's experienced that a lot. So, so does that boil down to experience then? Yes. Knowing the other person? Yep. And being able to have an understanding that you have to hold that space for them when they get activated. And that's very difficult to do. And you've got to train yourself to do that. Um, and that's really what our whole program is all about is sort of building that ability to um, resolve the trauma, which allows you to hold the space. So I had a couple, for example, a very successful couple, the husband was, um, you know, very well known. He was a, a speaker and his wife, you know, was in, obviously involved with him. But the problem that she had was she had so much trauma that what he said to me is, is if I came home from a rough day or something that happened at work that day and I come home and I start trying to share it with her, I would activate her nervous system. She would instantly escalate. And he says, and then I'm trying to calm her down. And he goes, I just needed to be able to vent a little bit, but I couldn't do that with her. I found the same thing, that if I came home and wanted to vent, my wife would then be, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, it's going to end. Something's wrong now. So, you know, so what does this mean about, she would go into that fear mode that we are in danger. And so then if that person can hold that space for you to be able to release a little bit of your tension or vent a little bit of your frustration, then the communication breaks down. Then you're afraid to talk. You're afraid to say anything, right? And then you stop communicating. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that there is a problem that you cannot solve? No, I think everything can be resolved. Our minds and bodies are designed to heal. 
So the only thing that I have found that has severely hampered the ability to heal is unresolved trauma because it keeps us in a loop. We get stuck in a loop of the trauma and we continue to act. So for my wife, even though I wasn't trying to, I could activate her nervous system. And that was with the best of intentions. So when she was living in her, imagine her living in a home where you've got a father that's completely out of control. Her nervous system was in a constant state of flight because she was living in fear. So then she marries me and then all it takes is me to do 1% of what he did. And she could then feel the same thing as if he was yelling at her. That made no sense to me. And I couldn't fix it until we got the trauma resolved. Did you ever find yourself in situations where you were trying to fix other people? Because I certainly have. In, in fact, there were multiple chapters throughout my life where I was desperately trying to change other people based on the way that I was seeing the world and all of these positive and beneficial things in my life. And then what I realized was that I was literally embarking on an impossible mission, at least in my opinion where I was trying to change someone else's perspective, someone else's opinion of whatever it may be based on how I was able to do it. So ultimately what I've realized throughout my own experience is that the only person that I can truly change is myself. And I do believe that change does start from within. Yes, I might be able to influence someone else's shape, but as far as the shape and the trajectory of it that they choose to go on, it's completely up to them. Did you have a similar experience, different? And if so, what did you learn along your journey? Because it, I mean, it directly relates to the work that you do as far as holding a space for individuals right now. But at the same time, there's, at least in my opinion, there's that recognition that I can hold a space for you, but you have to create a space for yourself within the shared space that the two of us have. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point because you're right. We do try to fix these people. We try to help them because we care about them. We mm -hmm. love them, right? Or whatever it is. But you're right. You cannot do it. You can help, right? You can try to provide some space for them. But until they resolve the trauma that they've been dealing with, right? You're like, there was nothing I could do to try to help my wife, right? I could try to make it safer. I could speak a little bit differently. I could change the tone of my voice. I, I did a lot of different things, but I hadn't resolved the problem. I was just like managing it. Yeah. And that's not the answer. The answer is to fix it. And so the only way to fix it is to get the trauma resolved. Mm -hmm. And then once that trauma is resolved, it completely changes everything. Mm-hmm. What else can an individual do besides changing the environment? Because it sounds like there's a lot more than that in changing one's perspective and, and ultimately way that they view life. Yeah, really what it comes down to is the way the mind filters through those experiences. And the way I explained it in our program is that if you've had a lot of trauma, your subconscious mind has recorded every detail of your life. Everything you've ever seen, heard, smelt, experienced in your lifetime has been recorded and stored in this explicit memory. That's what keeps activating the nervous system. Because if something looks like, sounds like, smells like an experience you had before, the mind is responding to the old information, not the new information. 
it's activating the old information, seeing it in real time and responding to something that happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So when I was saying to my wife, no, I don't like that. She was, I thought she was responding to what I just said. And it wasn't what her mind was responding to was when I say, no, I don't like that. Her mind would literally do a Google search. What do we know about men who start to get angry? And a flood of data about her father would come flooding in and then she would feel totally dysregulated even though she didn't know what it was she thought it was me saying something that made her upset and it wasn't me it was i just activated this google search and it was all the data that she was flooding through that was activating her nervous system so the key there is to change the browser yes (laughs) <laughs> so you, what you got to do is you got to you got to defrag the computer, right? You've got to get those those events and experiences resolved. And when I say resolved, I don't mean that we have to fix them, because that's exactly what the mind's been trying to do is fix them. We just have to allow the mind to stop calling for an action, because anytime this is what I hear all the time, people will say the emotion is connected to the event. I say no, it's not. The emotion is the response to the event. So anytime you have an emotion, your mind is calling for an action. The purpose of fear is to escape a threat. The purpose of anger is to attack or extinguish a threat. So if you think about something that happened to you 10 years ago and you feel fear, it's an error message. It's a glitch. Your mind thinks something needs to be done about that event now because it's seeing it in real time. That's the error message. So that's what was continually happening for my wife. So the idea is, is that we stored a lot of that information in high definition and what I call a, you know, a high resolution state. So if I asked you what you ate for dinner last night, can you tell me what you ate for dinner last night? Spaghetti and meatballs. Okay. So when I asked you that, you saw pictures, right? Of where, what you ate, maybe Mm -hmm. where you were when you ate it. That's how you access memory. No other animal can do that. Only humans store details like that. Animals learn through associations and repetitions, but they don't store tremendous details about events. Now, because last night the dinner wasn't extremely traumatic or disturbing, right? It may have been a great meal. Pretty good, right? actually. Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't stored in a very high resolution state. If that had been a traumatic event, your sight, your hearing, your smell, right, would have been heightened. So it would have taken in a tremendous amount of detail about that event and stored it in this high definition. That's what keeps activating the nervous system. So if I said something to you, say spaghetti and meatballs was a traumatic event to you, and I said, oh, you know, do you like spaghetti and meatballs? And your heart starts pounding in your chest. Why did that happen? I just said, spaghetti and meatballs but your mind said what do we know about spaghetti and meatballs looks at an event that was hurtful right painful and then calls for an action about the event that already happened Mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah are all of the traumatic experiences based on not real memories but memories that are stored or is there also a relationship between traumatic experiences and how trauma is stored and false memories? Um, false memories can build as well. But what I've found in most situations, it's, it's the active memory system 
that is that is doing it. False memories can sort of come from somebody trying to resolve it themselves, and then they start trying to think about other details, and then they maybe then it starts becoming the story that they tell themselves. I don't think people are deliberately trying to build a false memory. I think it's more of a protection system that maybe it was a little bit better, a little bit lighter, maybe it was a little bit different, or we tend to make things, have you ever gone on a vacation and then, you know, five years ago, you think that was the greatest vacation of my life, right? Because we tend to probably think about the things that were the, the best part of the Until vacation. I go on to the next one. The next and vacation. then I say that is the greatest one. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I over-dramatize it 100%. Yeah. So we tend to sort of exaggerate what was good and exaggerate what was bad, but I don't think it's a deliberate attempt, right, to make a false impression. It's just the way the mind works. We glamorize something, right, or we dramatize something more than it really was, but the memory is still there. And so regardless of what way, you know, it works. Now, can somebody create a false memory or create something? Sure. But I don't think it's a deliberate attempt. Mm-hmm. to necessarily do that. What contributes to that, in your opinion, as far as dramatizing something or exaggerating something or diminishing something? Is it the, because I've been trying to understand that the same exact example that you brought up, I would go on vacation and afterwards for however many hours or days, I would say that was the greatest vacation. And then recently I've started to really explore that in in, in terms of was it really the greatest vacation? I mean, what made it so great or so much greater than the previous ones? And what I've learned through my experience is one of the reasons why I say that is because a conditioning, that's just the surroundings, the people that I surround myself with, the thoughts, the perspectives. But then the other reason is because I think it's so fresh in my mind that some of these other experiences are a little bit harder to recall I, yes, I can recall the place and the time and everything, but I have a harder time recalling the smell, the sound, some of these other things that were impacting me and making that great experience. And so I've, I've really tried to understand why is it that I exaggerate with some of these things and, and where does that really come from? I think really where it's coming from is just what I talked about is how when we have an experience that is either negative or positive, right, we, we tend to be in a, a state of mind at a heightened state, right? So if you're going on a vacation and this is exciting and it's new, you haven't seen it before, we tend to then bring in more information, like we're appreciating it more. So we then bring in the sunset, we bring in the color of the sky, the grass, right, the smell, the breeze, whatever it is. So we tend to take in more information, which makes it seem better than it was. And we sort of gap. So, you know, maybe let's just use an example. You went to the beach, right? And you got on a sailboat and you went sailing and you you snorkeled and you did all those things. But then there were some times that you were just sitting there doing nothing. Well, the snorkeling, the sailing are going to be recorded a little bit brighter and more intense, a lot more detail. So that's why it looks like we tend to exaggerate it. I think it's more we just remember in greater detail the higher resolution type of experiences. I never thought about it that way. Thank you for sharing that. I, I've Because I've, I've been curious about that for a while. Why does it happen? And I think what you just described as far as heightened sense or heightened awareness 
to these things. And I, and I also think that probably the more information there is, the higher the chances are of me remembering it as exactly that. Right. You've stored more detail. Mm -hmm. And so we go into what, what I was referred to as a beta brainwave state. So beta is the mind is cycling between 15 and 30 hertz or cycles per second. We're taking in a tremendous amount of information. So when we're in an exciting kind of a situation, we're going to be taking in a lot more detail. And so it's going to record that detail in memory. So then when you recall it, there's a lot of detail to it. So, but that also is what creates the trauma response. Because the exact same thing is happening for trauma as it is for these heightened pleasurable events, right? And so that's going to activate our nervous system. So if you have a really heightened pleasurable experience, you're going to probably, as you're thinking about it, right, you're going to be probably smiling, feeling good. There's going to be this, you know, good experience that you're doing because you've got a lot more detail to look at. And the same thing with a traumatic event, why your nervous system would go into a hypervigilance situation is because it's seeing it in real time, very expressive and detailed. So what we do in our program is from the trauma side is we get the mind to reset some of that high resolution trauma uh, memory into the same format as to what you ate for dinner last night. And then that calms it all down. And the, and the brain is capable of doing that and amazing how fast it can actually change that detail to that event. So one of the things, if I understand that correctly, then is it to not necessarily eliminate, but more so manage the amount of information so that the triggers are not no longer the same, for example, and correct me if I'm misunderstanding this, but if I have an experience, a traumatic experience that I can remember in detail with a lot of information around it, therefore, I think that increases the number of triggers that can trigger that experience. So next time I see, I don't know, someone riding a horse or smell a particular thing or hear a particular sound compared to the other lens that you described, it, and that is if I solely see it as spaghetti and meatballs, then that kind of decreases the number of chances of me being re-traumatized because the number of triggers is no longer the same. Yeah. So, so basically what happens is, is that if your mind thinks there's a threat, it perceives mm -hmm. a threat. Mm -hmm. When it looks at this information that happened five years ago, it's going to think something's happening now mm -hmm. because your subconscious mind, their survival brain operates in the present. It's activating memory that looks so real because it's so bright and intense that it's calling for an action. It wants you to do something about it, but there's nothing happening that you can do anything about. That's post-traumatic stress. That creates anxiety. That creates panic attacks. All those things when people come into me and they say, I have this or I have that, panic attacks, I have anxiety. I said, those are just symptoms. It's not what you have. There's a reason why you have that. We just need to get to the root of what's creating that. And when we get to that, you know, for example, I worked with um, Rebecca Gregory from the Boston Marathon at the bombing. She was three feet from the first bomb that went off and lost her left leg. And so when she first sat down and started talking to me, she's shaking and crying. And I said, Rebecca, do you know why you're shaking and crying right now? And she says, well, because I'm talking about what happened to me. 
And I said, correct, but your mind thinks there's a bomb about to go off. It's seeing that information in real time. That's why you're having the emotional response. Your mind thinks there's an action required, but there's no action required. That bomb went off five and a half years ago. It's not going off now. That's the issue that people are dealing with and they don't realize it. That's what I didn't realize my wife was dealing with, my daughter was dealing with. That trauma keeps looping, constantly activating our nervous system, which is then affecting our immune system, affecting our health, affecting our neurotransmitters, right? Because we're in this constant state of stress. All we have to do is get that resolved and we can do that very quickly. Fascinating. What are some ways that people can connect with you and learn more about what it is that you're doing in the world? Um, if you check out, we actually have, I think this is going to probably be in your show notes, but we have a, uh, a site called, it's www.getgettip, which is the name of our program, tip. So gettip.com. And then I think we have a slash odds. And so if you, it's a special discount i guess for your listeners that if they want to go through the program we have a digital experience and then we also have a one-on-one with me that you can do and i think we're offering like a founder's rate on that as well if people want to go through that but you can go on to that you can see all the testimonials of people that we've worked with you know from the boston marathon the vegas shooting victims veterans who've gone through severe trauma all the way to high-performing, world-class athletes, CEOs, executives. Because our program, I called it a performance program, not trauma therapy. Because I start from the premise that there's nothing wrong with anybody. Everybody's mind works perfectly fine. The reason you're experiencing what you're experiencing is because your mind is filtering through your life's experiences and is creating responses to it. Just a series of glitches and error messages that we can get resolved. What Once we get those events and experiences resolved, your mind stops calling for those actions and you can live in peace. That's the goal and stay present. So if you read all the self-help books, they'll tell you stay present, be in the moment. But our minds don't necessarily work like that all the time because it's filtering through our life's experiences and responding in real time to something that's not happening. That's the glitch and error message that I say we need to get corrected. And then that allows you to live the life that you want to live, a peaceful existence. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content Also, if you like what you heard, consider supporting our work by making a donation through our website at overcomingodds.today. Once again, we thank you for listening and we'll look forward to having you next time.